opening to God's word, I want us just to pause and just come before his throne with thanksgiving. Uh, sometimes it takes a minute just to get into the room. So just pause and acknowledge that God is king. He rules over all the earth. Let me read this from Psalm 42. I was just reading this this morning. It's not going to be on the screen. It says this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge our hunger for God, our need for Him to satisfy us. Maybe you come into this space feeling the crushing weight of everything that was behind you, or just to get into the space this morning felt like a huge weight. So let's just pause and confess our need for God and how graciously He's provided for all of our needs through His Son, Jesus. Bow your head for a moment and just... Confess your need, your thirst, your desire to see him and to know him. Father, we pray that this time would be full of your glory, that we'd be able to see you. For those that come into this space where it feels like their tears have been their food day and night. For those that are suffering, struggling. God, I know that you see us. You see perfectly what we're going through. And I just pray that your nearness would be our good today. That you'd be a comfort to those who are weary. That you'd strengthen us, sustain us. As we turn our hearts towards your word, we ask for your will to be done. Once again, we would open our lips and praise you. Maybe it feels far off for some of us in the room, Lord. It feels like a sacrifice to declare your goodness because we see all kinds of evidence that maybe it feels like we've been forsaken. And so today, as we come into this space, we acknowledge that all of our life you've been faithful. In every season, in every moment, you still remain faithful. You still remain good. So whatever we bring into this space today, we just declare that over it together again, that you alone are faithful and good. You're a righteous judge. You do all things well. Help us to come to the table and hear from you today. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. If you're a visitor today, we want to welcome you and let you know that there's a card in the seat back in front of you. Even if it's not a visit for you, you'd like to let us know about a prayer request We'd love for you to fill this out. Drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out, and we'll contact you in a respectful way. 
We're glad that you're here. This is week nine for us in the book of Genesis. We're going to be here for 11 weeks, so we have a few more left. Um, actually, more than 11 weeks. We're going to be here uh, for 14 weeks. So we've got, you know, 12 weeks. So we've got three more left uh, in this book, and then we're going to come back to it hopefully next year and pick up with Abraham. And so we've been walking through the beginning narrative of, of who God is and how he created the world, how he created it with purpose to glorify him. And today we get to a story uh, that seems puzzling that we would decorate kids' rooms with it. It's pretty gruesome, right, that, that God is about to walk through in Noah what happens to all of his creation. He kind of starts over and undoes what has already been done, but not completely. So as we come to this passage today, I'm asking that you'd ask God with us to speak to us again, that our hearts would be tender towards what he has to say to us. We believe that his word is our authority and rule. So we come asking God to instruct us. Let's start in verse 5, and then we'll read through it and pray again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set a door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. And then in verse 21, Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray that it would instruct us that we would see just how you look at creation, your heart grieved over sin, and your plan and promise of salvation. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the questions that I've been asking this week, both of myself and of things that I'm reading, is what makes a good judge? 
In fact, I asked a lawyer on my way in, what makes a good judge? A lot of times we would think whatever we think about a judge would depend on which side of the law that we're on, right? We're hoping he'll be gracious. We're hoping he'll be stern with those who've offended us. But what makes a good judge really depends on what God says about himself and a judge in the, in the scriptures. Thinking clearly about God as a judge over mankind can be a challenge for us. It's, it's offensive to our sensitivities many times. But this moment in creation's history when God makes it clear that he occupies this role over all of creation, that he can look at it and declare what's good and what's right, what's sinful and corrupt. And throughout God's word, there's many ways in which God sets himself up as a judge. Not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well. J.I. Packer described these four qualities about a biblical uh, judge. What is it? Now, I'm summarizing, okay? This is in Knowing God. He says, number one, they have authority. They have the right to declare that something is good or bad. Number two, they have to be good according to these rules. Number three, they're wise. They have wisdom to discern the truth about what's good and evil. And number four, they have the power to execute a sentence over what they've declared good and evil. God is all these things. Though he's not referred to as a judge here explicitly, we can see throughout this passage that God is just, he's merciful, and he's a righteous judge. So what does it tell us about him? There's a few things that I want to observe from this text. There's more than this going on, but these are a few things. First, what's the setting of what's happening? The corruption of sin. And we're going to look at the faith of Noah. And last, we're going to consider what does God's heart look like throughout this passage? So pray with me as we look through them. First, the corruption of sin. The corruption that had started in chapter 2 and 3, where, where they're tempted in chapter 3, where they're tempted and they take the fruit, began to corrupt all things. All of creation became more and more and more bad. There's anger and bitterness and jealousy. By the time we get to Abel and Cain, one murder led to a continual state of violence. Throughout this passage, it says that he observed it, and it was not just corrupt, but all kinds of violence had, had fallen out. Not only the ground was being corrupted by sin, and they were toiling over it, but the human race was becoming more and more wicked. Wickedness was great on the earth. The ways in which they were rebelling against God was getting more and more creative. First, they just took the fruit. Now there's lots of things happening. The thing I want you to see is God is not absent from it as he observes it. Look again at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not only their actions were wicked, but even their intentions were wicked. He could see that even the restraint that they might have had or even the actions that they didn't do was corrupted by wickedness. And then it goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Things had gone from really bad to really worse. And there's a great need at this point for a reset, a renewal, a revival Everything had gotten worse. And it's gotten so bad that as God sees it, he's ready to start over completely. 
Now, can you imagine an earth so difficult to survive in that all the order that God had imagined in creation was being assaulted by the sinfulness of man? When we look at God and his holiness, if we're not given to avoidance, we can also see the depth and the darkness of our own sin. And maybe even in this cultural moment that we're in today, that there's so many ways that God's design has been corrupted in so many ways when it feels like when in Rome, we just do as the Romans do, right? We look at the culture around us and say, hey, if this is how it goes, Maybe this is how we go. Or the proverb, we must howl when we're among wolves. In a lot of ways, this is how we see the world around us. We've adjusted God's design to fit what we see as normal. There's even a way to be in the world and still, is there a way to be in the world and still be salty or have the aroma of Christ? That's the question that I bring to this. It's a question that maybe some of you are having today. Like, how do you even live in a world that seems like everything is going away from the ways of God? So how do we do it? Now, there's some examples from Noah's life. But ultimately, as we transition to looking at Noah, I want to start in Hebrews 11 because in this hall of faith, in this passage, it describes why this man Noah had favor with God. Why was he righteous? Why was he blameless? How did his life look different in the midst of a corrupt place? And it says this in Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark by the saving of his house, for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So what's the thing about Noah? It comes back again to faith, which we talked about last week with Abel. What made his offering acceptable to God? It was because he had faith. The only way that any of us would stand blameless or righteous before God, the only thing that counts unto him as pleasing or meritous is our faith in what he's doing and who he is. And so who's this character? I want to walk through who this man is, Noah. First, a few things in this passage in Hebrews. It says this, he was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. There's some degree to which he had never seen anything like what God was describing to him doesn't necessarily mean that it never rained, but he had never seen it flood. No one's ever seen it before. No one's ever seen it since in the way that Noah was about to see it. And he heard God's declaration of judgment and he acted upon it. He demonstrated faith because he believed in things that were yet unseen. He hadn't seen what God was describing and he acted anyway. His obedience, his action came from this reverent fear. Now, Fear is not always a bad thing. In fact, all throughout the scriptures, it describes fear as the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of our hearts being turned towards God. There has to be this reverent fear. It's not being afraid of God. It's saying, I have a reverence. The right way to fear God is acknowledging that God is great, that he's in the heavens, and that he does as he pleases. He acts righteously. And with this kind of reverence and awe for God, Noah begins to act and through the rest, though the rest of the world is condemned by his actions, he's a man of incredible faith and reverence and awe and obedience. And it didn't come easy to him either. You guys know who Noah's father was? He's Lamech, the guy that came father. Great, 
great-grandson of Cain. Lamech, his father is this violent man, the kind of man who boasts about being violent. In fact, he takes two wives and he says, if a man wounds me, I'm going to kill him. If a man kills someone, I'm going to have vengeance 70 times 7. He's full of spite. In other words, he didn't have a great dad. Anyone dares mess with me, he's going to regret it. His dad has a couple wives, so Noah is raised up with some sister wives of some sort. What's that got to do with you? Again, he's, he's raised in an environment where everything was against God's design already. He wasn't born with some kind of spiritual pedigree. He wasn't born in some household where they were going, okay, let's pay attention to what God wants. But in that setting, Lamech fathers Noah, and he says something at the very beginning of his life that says, this kid is different. So even the violent man is looking at Noah as a baby and saying, something's going to be different about him. This is what it says in Genesis 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. He's looking at him and saying, maybe some kind of relief is going to come through him. Now, Noah's name, it sounded similar to the Hebrew word for rest. In other words, he's naming him this, this idea of relief that every time they'd say it, they'd be reminded that something about this guy is going to bring relief to everything bad that's happening. He's born in a rough family, born in a rough period of time. Everyone's looking for relief. And look at verses 8 and 9. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I'm just going to walk through each of those. First, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We've already said this, but here we learn that not only the corruption is what God sees, but he's able to look and see this individual who's some kind of supernatural exception to what's going on around him. He's looking at him and saying, this, this one is different. He found favor. He saw him. And there's a specific kind of unique delight when God looks at Noah and he says, this guy is blameless and righteous. And then it describes how he interacted with God. He walked with him. He practiced God's presence as he went. He didn't just have like a momentary acknowledgement of God. He walked with him. It's interesting because I... It reminds me of Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence uh, was this guy who wrote this book, Practicing the Presence of God. And he would say that even while he was washing dishes in a monastery, he would just practice God's presence, think about him throughout the day. And he said, I can't imagine anyone living in some other way, especially someone who would consider themselves a follower of Jesus. This is what he said. I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in the depth of center of my soul as much as I can. And while I'm so with him, I fear nothing. But the least turning from him is insupportable. In other words, he's saying, there's no other way that I can live supported other than being aware constantly of God's presence around me, his nearness towards me, his favor and delight towards me. And I would say the same for any Christian. The less that we're aware of God's presence, the less distinction there'll be in our lives from everything else going around us. We're not going to be saturating culture with God's love and justice and holiness 
It's going to saturate us with its corruption and hate. So Noah, he walks with God with an awareness of God's presence. And somehow this man of faith looks different, different in his generation, which would seem unlikely, impossible. And that kind of walking with God, reverence for him, a life of faith, Noah obeyed everything that God commanded. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. So he does everything he says. And so I want to just point out a few things before we move on to the heart of God. Maybe you're in this room today and you're thinking, how in the world can God uh, even make a decision like this to flood the earth? If you're struggling with that, in just a moment we're going to look at God's heart for the world First, Noah, this man who looks distinct, maybe you have some similarities with him. You look around you and it feels like everything is just corrupted. Maybe you've been born into a family that looks like Lamech. (laughs) Rough, sinful world, corrupt in every way, and it feels like it's impossible for you to be different. Surrounded by a a corrupt culture, Saturated with sin more than God's presence. And these descriptions of him are good. So even if you're looking at it and saying, okay, is he some kind of pattern? He resembles Jesus. But we should walk up to the scripture and say, how could our lives look like him? There's a degree in which he's the hero in this passage. He's not a perfect man. Later he gets drunk and takes off all his clothes. But in this moment, we're looking at him going, Wow, God's using him in a distinct way. It's amazing that God would do that, that God would look on any one of us with favor because of our faith, that we would trust that he's good and entrust our lives to him. And he's not only doing that, there's several places throughout this passage that reveal what God's heart is like towards a broken world. So let's consider, what does God's heart look like as a judge? He is a judge. He's a righteous judge. But what is his heart doing in this passage. Before there's ever a conversation with Noah warning him that that he's going to destroy everything, we learn that God sees everything. Before he comes to Noah and says, this man has favor, he's looking at the earth and saying, this is not what I intended. He sees all of it. He's omniscient, which means that he has mental capacity to know everything everything about himself. He knows all actual things and all potential things. He knows all of it. In a couple places it says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And what else did he see? He didn't just see the actions. He saw their intentions. He could see the thoughts of their hearts that were also inclined towards evil. The earth is corrupt in God's sight and he's filled with violence. He's seeing every act of violence. The ones that people thought no one else had seen against them. God saw it. And he said, this is wrong. Maybe some of you are are wondering if God knows either what you've done or what's been done to you. And it feels like no way will there ever be justice towards the sins committed against you. We talked about this last week with Cain and Abel. God sees And injustice provokes his heart. Everything was in God's sight. There's nothing hidden from him. Not a single thing. He sees the violence. He sees their intention. And so for the people who've experienced lots of good things or lots of bad things, what I want you to know is that the heart of God sees all of it. 
He's not separate from us. Everything that we do or say or experience is being witnessed by him. He sees it. God sees all of this. And how does he respond? He's not indifferent. The foundation of everything that follows in his action is that his heart is being grieved. He's moved. He emotes. Now, there's a few words that describe God in this passage. He repented. He regretted. He grieved. He was grieved to the heart. He was sorry that he had made man. Now, we must first understand that God is not like us, but there's times when God is described like us with traits that we would be familiar with. It doesn't mean that he regretted in the way that we would regret doing something wrong. He looked at creation and said, this is not what I intended it to be. He could see all the, the beauty of his design, and he's not indifferent toward it. He's moved not only to emote and say, I'm grieved by this, but he's moved to action. The world is corrupt, and the actions and tensions are corrupt, and he sees all these things getting worse, and he's moved, not just in his heart, but to action. And what's his action? He proclaims judgment. His grief leads him to action. He takes action against the violence. People are killing each other, and he's saying, no, this cannot be. This is not my design. So he's saying, I'm going to blot out everyone, but not yet. He's not going to allow sin to be victorious forever. He does not allow sin to be victorious forever. Now, he's already made a promise that he has to keep in chapter 3. That one day there's someone coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent. So not only is he going to be victorious over sin, he still keeps his promises and partners with his creation. He proclaims his judgment, but he doesn't just witness the world. He's engaged. He's capable of action, and he brings his righteousness to judge. And he says, I want to partner with you, Noah. I want you to be an agent of my promise. And he continues to do that. Now, many of you, if you come into the space kind of uncomfortable with God being a judge, I want you to know that he's not a judge like us, okay? He's not like us. His mind is not angered in the same way that we would be angered over sin because we're sinful beings. Anytime he demonstrates his justice and wrath, it's always perfect. Maybe you imagine God as kind of this emotional being that's just ready to zap you all the time, like afraid. I want to read this from uh, Gentle and Lowly. Dane Ortland describes God's anger like this. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams, ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times, especially in Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Kings, and Jeremiah. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. So the conclusion is this. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up ready to gush for it. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build, but it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. So we see in verse 7 that he's intending to do this, but by his mercy, God's heart is inclined to partner with Noah and to save humanity and save his people. 
God makes a promise. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. In other words, he's not just telling Noah what he's going to do. I'm making a promise that's going to be fulfilled through you, Noah. I'm going to accomplish my purposes through you. And his heart is broken over sin. He is a just God, and he does work to judge sin. But he also works to make provision, to see his mercy. So God's heart for all of creation is this, that he would preserve what he designed it to be. He's actively working right now to do the same, to preserve his design, to reinstate and to renew this place where we would thrive and demonstrate his glory. So in conclusion, what does it matter? Well, a couple of things. God still sees and judges. That's part of who he is. So I wonder how often do we consider the reality that he sees everything that we see? Do we share his perspective? Do we grieve over what grieves him? Do we walk with him because his presence abides in everyone who trusts in him? He's not absent. He's near. Do you walk with God in the life of faith and obedience and listening to his word? He grants us power as we walk with him. Some of you are thinking, there's no possible way There's no possible way for me to live in such a way in this culture, in this generation, in the family I was born in. There's no way. First Peter says this to everyone who believes. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, God is judge, and he offers to us his spirit so that we would have power to live in such a way that we're not being corrupted, but we're saturating the culture with his glory and design. And God not only sees, but he judges. There is no one in this room to which God is neutral. Jesus is not neutral towards the world. The corruption around you, inside of him, inside of you, he's not indifferent to that. He's not indifferent to what he sees. He's moved by it. We can't do away with it. We can't do away with this idea that God himself is a judge. Even if we're uncomfortable with it, we don't like to think about it. The only way that we can become comfortable with this reality is that we know Jesus. And Jesus himself said that he was a judge. In the Gospel of Matthew, he said this, The Son of Man comes in his glory. When I come into my glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And what will it be like? Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in the same way that God warned Noah, Jesus warns his audience saying, hey, there's a day coming where there's going to be judgment. And it really matters what you think about this. So what's the promise? It's not just that God will judge, but that he'll make provision for everyone who trusts in him. 
Again, from Gentle and Lowly. Sorry, it's just a great book. If we never come to him, we'll experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. That's from Revelation. If we do come to him, if we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness for us. We'll be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. So the way that we look forward to this kind of judgment is to know that God's anger and wrath and justice has been settled for us through the cross. We live in this place where God sees us. He knows better than we even know ourselves. We don't even know the degree to which our sins would offend him. We don't even know that. But he sees it perfectly and he offers us a promise and provision through Christ. Packer talks about God's judgment in this way. He says, we live under his eye. He knows our secrets. And on judgment day, the whole of our past life will be played back as it were before him and brought under his review. If we know ourselves at all, we know we're not fit to face him. What then are we to do? The New Testament answer is, call on the coming judge to be your present savior. As judge, he is the law, but as savior, he's the gospel. Run from him now and you'll meet him as a judge then and without hope. Seek him now and you will find him. For he that seeketh findeth, and you will then discover that you're looking forward to that future meeting with him with joy, knowing that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those of us who are trusting in him, we have this great assurance that one day we get to stand before him clothed in his righteousness alone. Rock of Ages says this, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from my wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath, make me pure. And then it goes on to say this, while I draw this fleeting death, looking forward to death, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We can look forward to the day when we see him unintimidated, but with reverence and awe that he's made a just provision for everything that we might have secret or have seen against him. All of those things God provides through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and worship him to that end. Lord, thank you for this, your word. I pray that we would see you as both just and the justifier today. Lord, we confess that not just our generation is corrupt, but we know it in our hearts. We know deep down that we're not fit to stand before you unless we're clothed in your righteousness. And so we plead with you, just make provision today. As we rejoice over your sacrifice, as we take the communion cup once again, I pray that you would just assure those who are trusting in you that their faith would be assured that they would feel the reality of your favor. Just as you said to Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that you would declare that over everyone in this room who's trusting in you, that they would run to you. They wouldn't run from you as a judge. They would run to you 
and that you would plead their case before your own throne. And I pray this for the name and glory of Jesus. Amen.